Appreciate Jerry uh, filling in today for Herman. And just want to express thanks to um, all of our staff and pastors, um, our choir, orchestra, praise team, sound lighting, decorations, our children's choirs. We've had a great uh, time of celebrating through song through the Christmas season. We have a very uh, gifted church in that area, and so it's been a great, great time to worship together. And so we're uh, thankful for that. And thank you all for all of your hard work. And I appreciate your faithfulness to be here today. Someone asked me to give the uh, Reader's Digest version of a sermon today. Um, <laughs> but um, when I gave the guys the PowerPoint, they said, oh, that's not going to happen. So <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Today again, and just to be able to celebrate Christmas. And we pray you'd bless this time now of giving a few moments to your word, rightly so on this day, the Lord's day, and rightly so on this day in which we celebrate, God, the great, great truth and wonder of the incarnation. We pray, Lord, today you would help us to see more fully the light in this. In Jesus' name, amen. I've entitled the message today, The Light of Christmas. One of the signs that Christmas is drawing near is the appearance of lights. Cities and towns, most of them, uh, put up and turn on the Christmas lights. People pull strings of lights out of attics and illuminate trees and bushes and put up lighted displays in their yard. Uh, now you can even buy the little box that just shines the lights on your house. You don't have to go to the trouble of hanging them anymore, which is a wonderful gift for some of you I know. And... You know, turning on the lights is even a national event, isn't it? In which the president and the first family light the national Christmas tree, albeit with less fanfare over the past few years. And this tradition, there's a, this year's tree, began in 1923 when Calvin Coolidge lit a 48-foot fir tree decorated with 2,500 electric bulbs colored red, white, and green. And that tradition has continued unabated in our culture except for the years 1941 to 1944, which was during the time of World War II. Now, this year at the lighting ceremony, there were performers such as Kelly Clarkson, uh, Clarence the Rapper, I'm not familiar with Clarence, um, Garth Brooks, and Tricia Yearwood, and it took place on December the 1st this year, and so this was uh, President Obama and his family's last year to light uh, the Christmas tree, but this is a, a grand and wonderful tradition in our culture. In Christian practice, the lighting of the tree, and we have trees lit in here today, goes back 500 years to the Reformation. We'll be celebrating the Reformation in 2017. It began in 1517 with Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the church door there in Germany. And Martin Luther, it seems, was the first one to... Um, put candles on the tree to light them. And he did it in reference to Isaiah 60, verse 13, where the Scripture says, The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the box tree, and the cypress together, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I shall make the place of my feet glorious. And so this is a way of, of praising God in His sanctuary, of lighting the tree. And Luther did that with candles. The question we may ask regarding these practices and this theme of light, why all of the light? Why did such a tradition arise? What mean these lights? Why is it a central theme that we use lights? 
Well, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them with me to the book of Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 12 through 16, and then you will find the scripture that Matthew is citing in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. So Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is beginning to preach, so this is not the birth narrative, but it comes a little bit later, the beginning of his ministry. It says, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And again, he is quoting there Isaiah chapter 9. Now, why is this theme of light there? Well, first of all, we think about this theme of light because it reminds us, and the truth of the Scripture is, that we need this light because we need light that is outside of us for spiritual direction. We need outside light for spiritual direction. Matthew, as he comes to talk about the launching of the ministry of Jesus, again alludes to this passage in Isaiah. But if you recall, back to the birth of Jesus, there is a lot there in relationship to the theme of light. The angel who appeared to the shepherds, you'll recall, the Scripture says the angel shone with the glory of God in Luke chapter 2, verse 8. So it was a glowing angel. The wise men followed a what? They followed a star. They followed light to find the Messiah. And if you go to the book of John, where John alludes to the coming of Jesus into the world, he he goes back into eternity. He doesn't say much about the birth of Jesus, but he does say this in John chapter 1, verse 9. He says, "The, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And so when Jesus came into the world, there was a lot made about this theme of light. And then when he starts his ministry, Matthew draws upon this great theme out of Isaiah about light. Now, in the passage in Isaiah, if you want to go back there to chapter 9 of Isaiah, where you find what Matthew is talking about. In the story in Isaiah chapter 9, the heading in my Bible is, To us a child is born. This is a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. This was taking place 700 years before Jesus was born. And what was taking place here is we find that the children of Israel, they were being overran through an invasion. The Assyrians, who were the world power, they were invading Israel and they were coming in through the north. And so the two northern tribes, remember there are 12 tribes of Israel, as they came up out of Egypt, made their way into the promised land, they settled according to their tribes. The tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali were in the north. And so what is happening is is that these these two tribes, these two states, you would think of them, are being invaded by the Assyrians, and they are being plunged into darkness. So when we think about these places, they've been taken captive. They're in darkness. And these are the places that would also come to have a central role in the life of Jesus. So Nazareth, the little town where Jesus would grow up, was located in the province or the family of the tribe of Zebulun. Capernaum, the town where Jesus would make, his, uh, make it the basis of his ministry, it was located uh, 
uh, near uh, Naphtali. Both of these are in the region of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. All of this is up in the north. And so in that time, God promises to them when they're being overrun, they're being plunged into darkness, He promises them, I'm going to send a deliverer for you in the future. And so you'll notice Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. <clears throat> the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. And so there's this promise of a new light coming in the future. And Matthew interprets that rightly so in relationship to Jesus. So a light has coming in the area of the Galilee. That's the first people who are really going to see this light. And it fulfills what Isaiah said. But why does Isaiah say that they need light? It isn't just that they're being overrun and they're being plunged into captivity by the Assyrians. It's more than that. Why does he allude to this in this passage? Because they, even the nation of Israel, not only are they being overtaken physically by the enemies, they are also a people who are plunged into spiritual darkness. That's why they're being overtaken by their enemies. And they become like the very people who are invading them. And so rather than truly seeking God, even the people whom God had set his hand upon to bring up out of Egypt, the Bible says that they really aren't seeking God. And so if you look in Isaiah in chapter 8 and verses 19 through 22, you'll notice what they're doing. Isaiah says, when men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists, and so these are people who are going to channel the dead. These are people that are um, astrologers, people that are palm readers, as we think of them today. Men, when men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists, whose whisper and mutter should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. In other words, rather than seeking God in His word, they were going in another direction. They were looking within. They were looking into um, spiritists and into the occult. The Bible says, distressed and hungry, then they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the what? The earth, and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into outer darkness. The point is that rather than looking up to God, they are looking within. They are looking to the earth. They are looking down. They are looking to spiritists and mediums who are trying to conjure up the dead to try to find direction in their lives. That's why they are in darkness. Not just that they are being overtaken by the Assyrians, but because they are plunged into spiritual darkness in their lives. And what happened in these tribes highlights the spiritual dilemma of the human race. Left to ourselves, we will always look in the wrong direction spiritually and seek to construct our own ways of dealing with the spiritual dimension of life as we make our way through the challenges of this planet. And in our fallen condition, our original ancestors rebelled against the Lord and His rule in their lives, and so do we. And in our fallen condition, we would have lost our way back to God. But we're culpable in this, as they were. And when they didn't get the answers they wanted, looking in the wrong direction, they, they cursed God in the midst of that as well. 
This is a picture of the microcosm of humanity. We are willfully in this condition. But then not only do we do that, being plunged into darkness, we then foolishly set up our own spiritual constructions, our own apparatuses, and foolishly substitute those things for the Lord. They were looking to spiritists and mediums. The people also then set up idols for themselves when they don't want to seek the God who is light. You remember in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, Paul, in describing the human race, in describing Jew, Gentile, all of us, Romans 1, verse 18, he says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth. People push down the truth about God. God has made everything known about himself to them, there without excuse. But notice verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Notice the theme of darkness there. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Isn't that crazy? Turning away from the God who's made himself known to us and saying, we don't want to know about you. We want to seek spiritual direction on our own terms, set up our own systems, right? I think the cultural term for that today would be that these people seem to be a little bit cray-cray. <laughs> They're crazy. And God knows this is crazy. If you go back to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 44, through the prophet Isaiah, God mocks people for doing this. And so this would be God mocking, in a sense, what ultimately grew into being the religions of the world. Man's own setting up of his own different ways, his different constructs. Not to seek God, but to not seek God. And in Isaiah 44, verses 12 through 20, we have this person the blacksmith that says takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of man, a man in all his glory that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and he bakes bread. So he uses this wood to make a, a fire to warm himself, to bake his bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god his idol. He bows down to it in worship. He prays to it and says, Save me, you're my God. Here we see God mocking people for making idols. Do you not see how crazy you are that out of the same thing you're making to cook your food over, warm yourself by, you're also worshiping it? How foolish can you be? You're in such spiritual darkness in your life. Over time, the human race has become willfully bound in darkness. 
and does so many crazy things in his religious practices, seeking to justify himself and ignore God. I mean, even today we have warnings in our country that ISIS has said they wanted to target Christian churches, and they found some places where they were doing uh, searches on the web about Christmas services around the world in Christian churches so that they want to go and attack them. And we must understand that from the vantage point of those who are wanting to do this, it isn't simply because they're wanting to attack because they hate, as they're often made out to be simply terrorists who want to hate. No, they're deeply devoted to their apparatus in which they think they can justify themselves by this action of martyrdom, as they would call it. It is not martyrdom, it is murder. But through that act, to somehow be made justified with God. Paul referred to all of this religious activity in Acts 17. You remember when he went to Athens and he was on the city with the philosophers? We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. And he says, I see that you have a a city, you have uh, idols to many gods. And he says, you even have one to the unknown God. And he talks about the fact that there is one true God. And he says that what you're doing is in ignorance. And God used to overlook such ignorance. But now he commands all men everywhere, that is all over this planet, to repent because he said today to judge the world through the man he has appointed the one who is the light Jesus who's come into the world and there's no excuse anymore and so the lights of Christmas remind us that God finally came to save us from such foolishness and the very incarnation of his son knowing that we would never make our way back to him He came to shine such light in the world in His Son that we can no longer ignore Him. That's why John 1, 9 says, The true light that lighteth every man was coming into the world. And so God has come to shine that light to show us the way back to Him and to provide the way back to Him through His Son who came and lived a sinless life and died in our place and was buried and rose again. And God says, If you will trust now in My Son, Not only will He show you the way back, He is the provision back. He is the bridge, and I will give you eternal life as a gift. I will forgive you of all of your sins if you will turn to Me rather than turning within and looking to the earth. Turn to Me, and I have made Myself plainly known to you. God has made Himself so plainly known in the birth of Jesus. Do you remember what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3? It says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son, that is Jesus, incarnate God in flesh, is the radiance of God's glory. See the light? He's the radiance of the glory. And the exact representation of his being. God has made himself clearly known. Sustaining all things by his powerful word, after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so Jesus came to be the way back to God. And this prophecy is telling us that he's the way back to God, not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. Remember Galilee of the what? Gentiles. And if you go back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, we see this universal purpose of this one who would come into the world when it says that, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee 
of the what? Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. That is, there's going to be a path to the sea that goes beyond just Israel. And this one who would come into the world who is the light to provide for and to show us the way of salvation. So we celebrate his light signified by our trees and all through this season. We celebrate his light because he has come to provide and to show us a way back into fellowship with God. I want to ask you, have you experienced that restored fellowship with God? You stop looking within and looking to the earth, looking to spirituality outside of the God who's made himself known, and have you turned to him? He has made himself clearly known in the very person of his son, the birth of Jesus, to say to you, I will give you eternal life. But there's a second reason we see this theme of light in relationship to Jesus. And that is, we also need outside light for moral clarity. We need outside light for spiritual direction, but we need outside light for moral clarity. We need illumination to our souls. You know, Isaiah, in the passage we read in Isaiah 9, he refers to people walking in darkness, which means they were living in darkness. All of life has fallen into darkness. Not only are they spiritually not seeking God, but seeking spirituality outside of God. But they also have become people who are plunged into darkness in their minds, in their souls. They are marked. And as you follow the theme of darkness in the Bible as it is developed, you come to see that darkness signifies two things. One, it signifies ignorance, which we talked about in point one. And it also signifies darkness in the world. Ignorance in the world and darkness in the world when it comes to God. And the theme of darkness exposes then that the world is not only filled with ignorance, but also with evil. There is both natural evil and there is moral evil. And we have been plunged into darkness and the fact that we are lost from God, but we're also messed up in our fallenness. And as a result of that, we are seeking the wrong things, living the wrong way. And part of that, Paul says is a sign that God is judging the world. If you go back to that passage in Romans chapter 1, where Paul talked about people, the human race, pressing down the knowledge of God and setting up their own systems to ignore God, he goes on to say in Romans chapter 1, in verses 24 through 32, that these people have become idolaters. And then he says, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And he goes on down through here talking about the moral depravity of humanity. I'm not going to read all of the verses there with small ears among us today, but I I do want you to know down in verse 29, it says they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And not only that, they approve of each other in it. He says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but approve of those who practice them. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about this in terms of our minds and the minds of the Gentiles being darkened. In Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 17, he says, I insist on, and tell you this, insist on it that you no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility or the emptiness of their thinking. They are darkened 
in their understanding. There's that theme of darkness. And separated from the life of God because of the, there's ignorance that is in them, but notice there's also the hardening of their hearts. And having all, lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You know, it's amazing as you listen to the people in the world and all the world's cultures seek to justify all sorts of bizarre and twisted behavior and attitudes. We're a twisted people. I did have a screen. I've asked our uh, person running our screen to not go to this slide. I don't want you answering questions today. And as I was thinking through this, I reminded myself we have small ears in here, so I will speak cryptically. But I mean, there was an article that I, I came across, um, and you can look up the guy's name, Joseph Guiso in Australia, um, exchanged nuptials with a four-legged friend, doggy. It's a platonic relationship, he says, but they agreed where they were going to do this. I don't know how the four-legged friend agreed, but they did. Thirty friends attended this for support. What about the friends? And we see all sorts of perverted behavior and immorality justified in the human race to show how warped and depraved that we have become. And Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 1. But it isn't just in those aspects of life where we are fallen and where we have darkness. It also is true in, in the most educated and in people who may think that they have moral clarity, people who think they're operating by rationality. Tim Keller talks about this in relationship to um, an article he, he read in Time Magazine, New York Times a few years ago. It said, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. We often hear that theme at Christmas from the secular world. We have light within and we can all work together to make all this work out well. But it goes on to remind us of the words of uh, Vaclav Havel, the first president of the Czech Republic, who lived under both communism and then under democracy, and he had a great perspective on things. And he was able to peer deeply into both socialism and capitalism. He was not optimistic about either to solve the greatest problems of human race. He knew that science, unguided by moral principles, had given us the Holocaust. And he concluded that neither technology, nor the state, nor the market alone could save us from nuclear conflict, ethnic violence, or environmental degradation. He said, quote, pursuit of the good life will not help humanity save itself, nor is democracy alone enough. He said a turning to and seeking of God is needed. And he said the human race constantly forgets that he is not God. And so we need light from without, not only to show us the way back into a spiritual relationship with God, because we are plunged into darkness there, and Jesus is the bridge, but also we need light to illuminate us, to help us out of our moral depravity that we see all around us, where people don't seem to have any real sense of what is right and what is wrong often. But not only in the gutter of human depravity, but also in man's rationality that the things that he makes... He still can make them and become very destructive with them. He can be very educated and then seek to wipe out a whole part of the human population, not only in the Holocaust of the 20th century, but in the slaying of the people of Russia by Lenin and Stalin and Mao in China and other places in the world. And so we need this light for moral clarity. 
And the light of Christmas reminds us that God radiated this light of moral clarity among us in the coming of Jesus into the world. He is the perfect human who never sinned. And we shall learn to follow his example and heed his teaching. And we need to apply who he is at every level of life. George Bush got made fun of several years ago when he said uh, and answered the question, who is the greatest political philosopher that you know? And he said, Jesus Christ. And I think he meant that in what he was trying to say of his understanding, his worldview. And that's true. We should follow Jesus and his principles in every dimension of life, not only politically, but down to the very moral fiber of how we live life. We need to heed his teaching. He is the light. And by the way, Jesus Christ affirmed all the full moral teaching of the Old Testament, and he actually intensified that teaching in the New Testament. You've heard it said of old, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you that if you do what? You look upon a woman and lust for her in your heart, you've committed adultery with her already. Jesus did not diminish the power of the moral law. He intensified it to show us the depth of our need for new life and new light. And it is in Jesus, the light who's come to the world, that we can begin to find true moral clarity to move forward toward the beings God originally intended for us to be. And so we celebrate with lights at Christmas because of a Savior who came to save us and a wonderful counselor, as Isaiah calls him, who came to deliver us from our own moral corruption and confusion. And then thirdly, and finally, I want to say to you today, and I am trying to give you the Reader's Digest version for me, the lights of Christmas also remind us that we need ultimate hope. We need spiritual direction and provision back to God. We need light for moral clarity because we are fallen and we're corrupt and we don't see things the way that we should simply through our rationality and through our experience. We need light from God. But then thirdly, we also need ultimate hope. Isaiah says of this one who will come to be a light to both Jew and Gentile that he will come to unfold a glorious destiny. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, I want you to look at those terms that he uses for this child being born. For unto us a child is born, verse 6, to us a son is given. And he says, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on, and how long? Forever. And notice he says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We don't have the zeal for this. We are mixed in our zeal. But God is absolutely dedicated to this. The zeal of God will accomplish this. And he is showing us that in the coming of Jesus, the light into the world that's ushering us into the last days. He is the ultimate hope for the survival of a new race, which God is now creating. When you and I become Christians, we're part of a new race made out of Jew and Gentile, God's family, his new people, that he is preparing for an eternal dwelling with him in a new heaven and a new earth under his government. And he is the hope of the survival for our race. Now, I read the other day again, and he's been saying this for several years, but Stephen Hawking, the physicist and scientist out of uh, England who 
holds the same chair Isaac Newton once held. He's had a form of ALS for a long time. He simply sits and thinks. He's brilliant. Debate whether he's an atheist or not. I think that he pretty much is. But he is uh, saying that we need to colonize another planet now in a recent speech at the Oxford University Union. He said that if we don't, he said humanity only has about a thousand years left of viable existence if we don't leave the planet. And so his idea is that we live in a fragile earth and if humanity is going to survive, we need to go and colonize other planets before this one ends. That's his view of salvation. I always want to ask an atheist, why should we care that the human race continues? If we're simply here as an accident of space and time with no meaning, no purpose, why should we care that anything goes on into the future? But our message is that there is one who does care and he has zeal for this to be accomplished and he sent his son as light into the world to redeem a people unto himself, to follow him as our ruler so that someday we will live with him in that beautiful, perfect new heaven and new earth. And we celebrate the lights because Jesus is the ultimate light to give us eternal life in a new heaven and new earth in his own good time. And Jesus said it this way in Revelation 21.5, which has become a central verse in my life. I use this verse in every aspect of my life now. Where Jesus Christ says, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down. For these words, these words are trustworthy and true. So the lights of Christmas remind us that a Savior has come to forgive us. A teacher has come to guide us and to lead us and to set us free to live in the way God intended for us to be. Remember, Jesus is our model. Jesus never sinned, and he pursued the Father. He's the most perfect man who ever lived. He had the most viable life that anyone could ever have. Would that not tell us that as we follow him and we're set free from the bondage of darkness and sin that we really live? And so he is our way back. He is our teacher to set us free, and he is a king who has come to share an eternal kingdom with us. There is no light as bright as Jesus. One thing about light, and it's this, you know, you can't remain neutral toward light. This light shining upon people in darkness is a light that one must respond to. In the end, this light provokes reaction. Some will not come to it and will remain in eternal darkness as twisted souls. John talks about that in chapter 3, verse 19, where John talks about this light again. In John 3, 19, John writes, Right after John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever trusts in Him should not perish. But then in verse 19, He says, This is the verdict. Light, light has come into the world. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. For that light truly to become light in us, we must come to the light in faith. 
trust in Christ. And the greatest question for all of us today on this Christmas day as we think about light. A light has come into the world to be the bridge back to God to show us the way to teach us how to come out of our moral depravity, to give us eternal hope. The greatest question for us is will we respond to that and become children of the light, which is the scripture we read in 1 Thessalonians 5 in the beginning of the service. The Christians were called children of the light. And have you become a child of the light by trusting Christ as your Lord and your Savior? If you're a Christian and you say, yes, I've trusted Jesus as my Lord and my Savior, are you following him as your wonderful counselor who never sinned and was perfect and he lived life, right? The most meaningfully it could ever be lived. And that's where you will find it and I will find it as we come out of our moral morass and darkness as we follow him. Are you seeking to build your life around Jesus, the teacher, and what he has taught us from his word? And are you truly depending upon him alone for your eternal destiny as your king, having given your life to him? As we think about light in the future, as you hang your lights on your trees or on your bushes or you set that thing up out in your yard to save yourself a lot of work, always remind yourself what the light is about and why it's a central theme and let it be used to preach the gospel to yourself each Christmas season. Father, we thank you for the true light that came into the world that lighteth every man. Thank you for being a light that shines in the darkness of this world to lead us from our ignorance, willful ignorance, suppressing the knowledge of you, showing up in our faces in a way to say, I am truly God. I am the way, the truth, and the life through the Lord Jesus. Thank you for coming to the world as light, to lead us out of our brokenness, the image of God being shattered in us. We thank you, Lord, that as we follow after you, we can truly live as we're set free from the power of sin. And we thank you, that, Lord, we don't have to live, look to atheists and spaceships for our future as a race, but you're making a brand new race right now as people trust in Jesus And you have a new heaven and a new earth coming when this one, Lord, is burned up someday in your wrath. So we pray that we will make sure that each of us, that we are children of the light, having trusted in Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. We pray, Lord, now as we come to this time of commitment that you would help people to sort through that central truth and our reason for gathering and thinking about these things today, but also for believers to search their hearts if there are things, Lord, that they are still building life around that is displeasing to you. If there are those who need to unite with this church or follow you in baptism, whatever decision may need to be made today, we pray, Lord, by your grace, that you would help it to take place, either seen or unseen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?